Hello everyone, welcome to the next episode of the Radio Data Podcast. Today our expert guest is Kevin Goldsmith, who works as a CTO at Anaconda. Uh, Kevin, welcome to our show. Thank you, I'm very pleased to be here. Yes, that's fantastic. And as always, let's start with the introduction. So could you please let us know more about yourself? Absolutely. I am the Chief Technology Officer at Anaconda. Um, if you are unfamiliar with us, we make a, we're primarily known for making an open source distribution of Python that's really focused on data scientists and data practitioners. It's used today by over 30 million people. Um, and we've been doing that for 10 years now. Uh, we uh, we have other products as well, but um, we're also kind of uh, some of the core maintainers of kind of well-known packages like Numba, um, like Dask, um, a lot of other um, kind of core data science projects um, we're involved with, um, Jupyter, Notebooks, things like that. Uh, and prior to Anaconda, I was, uh, I've been a CTO at companies like Onfido, where we did um, data science for identity verification using computer vision and deep learning. Um, and at uh, Avo, where we were a legal marketplace, and we used a lot of data science to uh, connect and uh, help people with their legal problems. And um, where where you and I uh, met, uh, I was a VP of engineering at Spotify uh, for a number of years. I was responsible for the what was called the consumer engineering group. Um, essentially, we were the ones who made the product, um, the mobile and desktop and web clients, as well as um, ingestion uh, and doing all the all those pieces. Uh, before that, I was at Adobe for a long time, as a Microsoft for a while, or a long time, um, and other companies as well. Yes, so in, in my opinion, it's very impressive work experience, and I will definitely ask some questions about uh, the companies that you have been working at, but maybe let's first focus on Anaconda, uh, because you work as a CTO there, so could you please uh, describe us how your daily work looks like at Anaconda and what your responsibilities are? Sure. So we do, uh, you know, beyond uh, having obviously such, we come from open source, we are an open source company at heart, but of course we're also a commercial enterprise and have to make money to pay everybody's paychecks and things like that. So it's a, it's kind of split. So uh, a big chunk of the, the organization is really focused on building the Anaconda distribution. And it's a lot of problems um, that you wouldn't maybe not expect building Python packages at scale is actually really hard, especially because a lot of the core data science Python packages are not written in Python. They're written in C, they're written in C++, they're written in Fortran, actually, quite a lot. Uh, one of my favorite jokes that I made, uh, if if you don't mind, my uh, is that the, uh, the D in data science uh, for Python stands for Fortran. Um, because they're just the amount of time we spend, because um, all these old packages were built on top of existing science packages. So when you talk about SciPy or AstroPy or any of those, especially kind of more niche kind of data science um, realm, there's a lot of that stuff. So a lot of my time, uh, a lot of the organizations focused on that. 
additionally, we have commercial products, um, primarily enterprise-based, that uh, I have to do normal kind of B2B type uh, CTO stuff around meeting with customers, um, making sure product development's on track. Um, we have uh, something called Anaconda Nucleus, which is more aimed at practitioners, giving them, helping them do their jobs. And that's something that um, has been growing a lot. Um, one of the things I came to the company to help do. So it's just kind of normal CTO stuff, which is meeting with customers, working with the executive team, uh, helping with the, helping make sure the organization, the technology organization is doing what's needed for our customers. It's, it's, it's not a specifically like uh, data E job more than any others, sadly, even though we are so focused on data science as a company. And can you also explain why do data scientists and various companies choose to use Anaconda? And what are the most important reasons? There's a, uh, there's a few reasons, I think, that specifically. One is because the, the, the distribution's been around for a number of years. Um, when I was first getting interested in, in understanding data science more, which was many years ago now, um, you know, I, I was a software developer. I come from a software development background, and I was certainly familiar with data, but I wasn't really, I was now working with data scientists. I was getting interested in using it. And so I bought a book from O'Reilly and like chapter one, install Anaconda. Um, Anaconda is actually, you know, honestly how I learned Python because I was more of a C++ developer before, before that. And so, um, that is how a lot of people join because when Anaconda came out, it was one of the only ways. I mean, it was really hard to install Python on Windows, nearly impossible. Anaconda made that problem easy. Now it is much easier to get Python on Windows. However, the Anaconda solver called Conda, different if you're familiar with Python, you're familiar with pip, pip install, whatever pip uh, upgrade. Um, so we have Conda. Conda is... Uh, very similar to PIP, except that there was a lot of effort put into the solver. So the PIP installer, um, by the very nature of the the way the Pi, uh, PI works, the the package, um, the packaging authority, they would have anybody upload binaries, right? They don't build all the binaries um, for Python. Um, people upload the binaries. We build them. So we build them to make sure they're compatible with each other. But also, we are very good at figuring out incompatibilities between packages. So it's very easy with PIP to install incompatible packages and break your environment, and everything stops working, and you don't know why, and you spend a lot of time doing that. One of the reasons, fixing it, one of the reasons why data scientists like Conda is because Conda won't let you install incompatible packages for the most part. You can still um, mess up your environment, but it's way harder. And because of that, you spend a lot less time kind of debugging your environment and just more time kind of focused on the work. And data scientists generally generally um, don't want to spend lots of time figuring out their environment. They just want to do their work. Um, and for that reason, it's, it's stayed very popular. Um, it's another reason why universities, when they teach data science um, or numerical computing at all, they generally have their students install Anaconda because it it installs all the kind of base packages you need 
as well as it stops them having to spend a lot of their time fixing students' environments. So that, that's why people use Anaconda, the Anaconda distribution. Uh, yes, many good reasons. Uh, thanks for answering this question. And now I would like to switch topic a little bit, uh, because before our podcast, I did a small research about Anaconda, and I checked on your company website that uh, that it says that today around 30 million users uh, from over 200 countries and regions use Anaconda. So uh, this is a very big scale, and I'm sure that you know a lot about use cases and success stories of how different people and different companies use Anaconda and Python to analyze this data. But in this particular podcast episode, I'm very much interested in how Anaconda uses own data and own internal analytics uh, to develop uh, own product. Uh, So would you be able to share some information about this? Yeah. Um, Yes. So, for example, like what data sets you take into account when you analyze how Anaconda is used or what data uh, you use to decide which features you should implement next in your product. So, simply speaking, how data and internal analytics are used at Anaconda. So, uh, we have an incredibly valuable data set that that is unique to the company, which is package installations, right? So when you conda install, when you conda upgrade, um, we we know what packages you're updating, you're, we know what packages you're installing. That's our pro- sort of really kind of interesting data set because 30 million people around the world use it. The uh, unlike, because we are sort of an open source kind of at heart, today we actually don't know very much about um, about the individual because we don't record any information. So there's not a tele- there's not telemetry in the Conda installer because I that would be a little creepy. Um, and so we actually don't that we don't we want to maintain the trust of our users. However, um, we are trying to figure out how to use that data in more practical ways. In the, in the simplest way. We know what packages people are installing. And once you get past the sort of uh, NumPy, you know, Matplotlibs of the world, it actually gets really interesting to see what sets of packages are installed together. Um, That gives us a lot of information around um, what new things are coming into favor. Um, And one of the things that I've worked on at the company since I've joined a couple of years ago has been actually taking advantage of that, could we know the next stable diffusion before it happens, right? Before everybody knows about it, just by watching what packages people are installing in aggregate, because um, that's really the data we have. So, we as a company, um, our our data store, our data store is is evolving. I have to be careful how I say it, because honestly, what's fascinated me joining the company, given that it is a data science company is we actually did very little data science in the company. We're a company that built tools for data scientists that a lot of people who work at the company are former data scientists, now software developers. 
um, but we did very little data scientists, data science ourselves on our using our own data. And that's been a lot of the evolution of the last couple of years. And that's a lot of, um, that'll be the, a lot of evolution in the company for the next few years. We're really only just getting started around that and using it to make better, better product decisions. So to, if I'm going to be honest, which uh, if I'm going to be honest, like, yeah, we're, we're evolving. Um, uh, ourselves. So I'm using a lot of what I've learned at prior companies to, to get a setup and to actually get a, a reasonable data infrastructure in place. We would unsurprisingly in a company that had a lot of data scientists, but not a lot of ML ops people until recently, a lot of stuff was still running on individual people's laptops and stuff like that, or running on for, in our case, we have a product called um, enterprise edition that lets you spin up environments um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff running on private instances of, of things like that. And we've been moving that all onto a data, data infrastructure with scheduling, with real time, with, a, with an actual data warehouse. Um, and yeah, but we're still relatively early in, in our, in our um, life cycle as a company. And you mentioned that we both work at Spotify at the same time. And as you as you know, at Spotify, we had a number of dashboards that I believe that everyone at the company was looking at regularly, even each day. Uh, for example, a dashboard with the number of monthly active users globally or per country. And do you also have some particular dashboards or, or key metrics that you look at every day as a CTO at Anaconda? Because we have these very different, in a lot of ways, Anaconda is interesting also as, as a relatively small company, um, as a relatively small company, the number of products we have and the different audiences we address, um, because we we have a large, um, you know, a, lo a large part of our business is enterprise, enterprise using our, our, our tools, enterprise using our products. And then we have the open source pieces. So it's not one dashboard. At Spotify, I there was a set of metrics I looked at every day, sometimes many times in the day, because I the areas I was responsible for were primarily around retention. And so I was watching all the, the metrics that from all the squads that led up into retention. And I was watching retention daily. And I was looking at all the experiments we had running. Um, on a daily basis, but it was all around that sort of single product, right? There's differences between the iOS client, and the Android client, that's the, you know, but but they were all kind of leading to the same same thing. For us, I'm really looking at um, I'm looking at CVEs against our packages. I'm looking at package flow. How you know how quickly are we when somebody updates a, a package? How quickly are we turning it around? I'm looking at delivery to our customers. We have partnerships with with Snowflake. We have partnerships with Microsoft. We have partnerships with Amazon. We have partnerships with IBM, Intel. Like, are we? You know, I'm looking at that and how we're performing against our agreements with them. I'm looking at Anaconda.cloud, and that's a little bit more of a traditional B2C SaaS platform. So there, I'm looking very much at at those kind of you know, activation, retention, those kind of normal product metrics. Um, I'm looking to see, like, uh, if anything is interesting about package downloads, right? So we found issues where, uh, you know, um, national laboratories or something were, down, were copying our entire 
um, package repository every hour for no particular reason. I think somebody out there just decided, oh, we want to keep our own local copy and wrote a bad script. So <laughs> I don't think it was a deliberate decision. I think somebody just messed up. And then we had to reach out to that lab and tell them, hey, I don't know if you realize this. This is probably not good. Um, but I'm looking for those kinds of things, spikes and the, the, those normal things. But it's against a whole bunch of different products that each uh, products or areas that each have kind of their own metrics I look at, but absolutely every day. Yes. So looking at this data, for example, product metrics or package downloads helps you to make many data-driven decisions about how your product or even products should be developed and in which directions they should go. And when I asked these questions first time, I intentionally focused on your internal data. But I'm sure that you also take into account some external data sets. So, for example, do you also talk, uh, take into account some specific data points in the global market or in the data science community to decide how Anaconda should evolve? Yeah. One thing you see from us, so every year... Um we publish something called the State of Data Science. It's a report that we generate every year. And we get that from talking to people. It's a lot of it survey driven. A lot, well, a lot of what I've been trying to do is get it more and more data driven. Um, but we are constantly looking at what's going on in the world, what new companies are you know, bringing in new things. A lot of my focus has been around ML ops and making that easier for data scientists. So. We track the open source and see what kind of interesting projects are, are coming up and, and um, being adopted. We look at specific kind of ML and AI technologies. And a lot of it is driven, um, uh, to be fair, a lot of it's driven just by talking to data scientists, which we do all the time, or um, following blogs. A lot of that kind of stuff shows up before I'd see it in, in like a dashboard but i am one of the things i have been working on is trying to get that to be a lot more data driven watching the feeds watching twitter and trying to see if we can identify some of these things a little bit faster but to be honest given how connected we are as individuals we tend to surface things we still mostly surface things through individuals being seeing something and then sharing it internally and kind of raising it and we have a, a pretty good network that way. Mm -hmm. So uh, you told that there are still many things that you can do at Anaconda. And what is the end vision of the platform that your company would like to build? And what is the ultimate goal that you would like to achieve, let's say, in five or ten years? One of the things that was really interesting to, to me joining the company, and obviously I, I was familiar with it before I joined, was just how central it is to so many data engineers, so many data scientists, so many numerical computing people's jobs and work and under finding out how much it underlies, even there is anacondas in all these places you would not, you don't know because you don't see it, but you can say, you know, any almost, almost, but more, way more than you'd imagine um, machine learning or ML ops or anything around this product that you're using probably has an anaconda underneath it. It's probably built on top of anaconda, which 
honestly, I didn't, even, I didn't even know until I joined the company and started meeting with our partners and realizing, oh wow, okay, I didn't realize, I, I didn't know that was built on top of Anaconda. Um, we want to continue to be kind of good independent um, stewards. I think one of the reasons why people feel very comfortable with us is we are very much of the open source. We very much care about the open source community. We very much feel part of the open source community. Um, and we help make that accessible to people. And it's very clear that open source is going to be the thing that continues to drive innovation in AI, in ML, in data engineering for as far as we can tell ever. So the vision is how do we make that easier for people to use, more accessible for people to use? Um, how do we make folks who do this for a living, how do we make their daily lives better? And that includes both contributing on the open source side. As I said, like a big, a significant chunk of my team is working on open source projects full time, right? Um, and we'll continue. And we, we uh, Anaconda was one of the places that incubated. We didn't create Jupyter Notebooks, but we helped incubate the project at the beginning. And then kind of were involved and then stopped being involved. In the last year, with the, with the, the change from Notebook 6 to Notebook 7 really being a completely different platform, we got re-involved and, and, um, and are now kind of the primary contributors on the Notebook 6 tree because we were concerned that people who use notebooks every day, Jupyter Notebooks, which huge, you know, millions of people do, that there are especially things like um, professors and stuff who teach with it and use all these plugins. Those plugins all break and Jupyter Notebook 7. And so we wanted to make sure that we were going to take help those folks, but then also help bridge them to the new platform because we care about the daily lives of practitioners. And so you'll see us continue to develop new open source projects. You'll see us contribute on critical open source projects that we that we think are important to the community and we want to support. Um, you'll see us create, continue to, to come up with new tools commercial or open source or open source and commercial. There's, uh, we didn't talk about PyScript. PyScript is something we launched this year, very exciting. Um, essentially builds on top of, um, builds on top of Wasm, builds on top of other Python in the browser projects to essentially create a, a, a easy to Python script in the browser. That's incredibly helpful for things like data visualization is incredibly helpful for kind of lightweight data processing. Right now, um, there's some really cool projects that have been done, like doing, you know, Jupyter Lite and things like that. Very still heavyweight, very slow. We're working on making that accessible, but also giving, Python, you know, giving developers tools and especially numerical computing tools in the browser. So you don't have to do a bunch of stuff on, the, um, on your desktop or go to cloud all the time. So it's about making data practitioners' lives easier. Yes, it's it's a very exciting and a very bold mission. No point in going small. Exactly. So helping every single practitioner and every single company to use Python and data science more efficiently is great. And yeah, I, I keep fingers crossed for achieving this goal. 
And uh, so far, we have been only talking about Anaconda, what was uh, extremely interesting, and I'm sure that I will be able to ask more questions about your company, but uh, still we have some time left, so maybe, maybe we can switch topic to a data science in general. And I prepared a few questions uh, for you uh, for this uh, section of our conversation. And I will start with the trends in the data science. So would you be able to tell what, in your opinion, are the most important trends in the data science that you currently see? There's a few things that I think are really kind of interesting that I've, I personally have been focused a lot on. I don't know whether I would call this kind of the, the, the generalized trends, but this is the kind of thing that I've been focusing on just from the because of my role. So one has been an interesting rise in security around machine learning and AI because for a long time we we kind of ignored it and because we could. And I think one of the things that, again, because of my prior role where I was doing more uh, machine learning around fraud prevention, the interesting thing was seeing, so we were, we were building machine learning uh, models to identify fraud and what we saw was the folks intending to commit fraud were building machine learning models to attack our machine learning <laughs> models so the days of uh the days uh you know because the tools that we have access to right the the tools you have the tools i have everybody has access to those tools including the people trying to commit fraud and also the, st the ambient level of knowledge around data science is growing, which means more people understand this. So if you were building, uh, if you're building models, let's not even say, you know, you're thinking about fraud, let's just say you're trying to make decisions around granting uh, loans. Well, I guess that is a bit of fraud, but, but you know, you're making critical decisions using machine learning models or, you know, even um, human in the loop models. Uh, if there's ways that folks can take advantage of those, you have to assume they're using tools as sophisticated as yours, which and that they understand how your tools are made. So they are doing things like post their people are posting models on Hugging Face or on Kaggle or 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 those kind of places. Hey, check out this model for doing this NLP thing. And what you don't realize is that model was trained and model works but it was trained on data that is opening a backdoor so that they can throw data at you that is gonna influence the decision process. It's not gonna be obvious, even if you have good drift detection and things like that. So security around this is, security around AI and ML is really kind of, people are growing in awareness of it. Not enough, um, but it is starting to, people are starting to become more aware of it. I think we're, we are getting better but we're not great yet on, you know, machine, especially if you're using deep learning and some of the, some of those techniques, you don't, no one understands how the models work and getting better visualization, getting better comprehension of the models themselves is becoming more important over the last few years. And especially for things like bias detection and, you know, things like that um, is I think a really interesting um, area that has had more investment and needs more. That's another area that I've been really focused on is bias detection um, in models and in training data. 
um, PII, especially as we add more privacy laws, especially as we get into things like, you know, having uh, being having to be careful about um, folks attacking to get PII, training models, being able to train models on um, on non PII data or finding ways to abstract PII data that still makes the models trainable. Just saw a paper on this, a new paper on this the other day. Um, that's interesting. That's another security and privacy. These are some of the things that I've been most focused on. But at the same time, um, this other thing that I mentioned is also really cool. The fact that you have um, platforms like Hugging Face, you have um, all, a lot of these platforms existed, but the accessibility of this of this stuff is just so much more helpful. There's so much more there, which means that you don't know you don't quite need a PhD in statistics anymore to actually be a practicing data scientist. Um, doesn't hurt, uh, but that's I think really interesting as well. Is those tools unsophisticated versions of those tools are becoming more accessible, which means companies are able to take advantage of them without having to build a data science team. But I also think it's really cool in that none of those tools is gonna to get you all the way. And the more sophisticated your company is around data, the more you realize, oh, actually, we need to do this ourselves because no one tool will solve all your problems. So that used to be where an enterprise would have to somebody, a CEO or somebody in the exec's team would have to make a decision. I've heard this data thing, data is important. We should maybe hire a person to do that. And then that person would get frustrated for years trying to convince everybody that they needed to do use data better. And eventually maybe they'd win and get to build a small department and grow up. Now I think companies all understand, no, we need to do it. They also understand they they can get started it on a on it on their own get some value reach the limit of the tools that are kind of broadly useful and then they need people like you or people like me to kind of come in and help them really evolve um, once they've already understood the value and that's been increasing so accessibility of the tools just continuing to grow sophistication of the tools oh my goodness I we keep I keep thinking about stable diffusion as an example just because it kind of oh this is cool the thing that OpenAI did or I don't even remember if they were the first but they certainly popularized it oh, this is a cool technique and it's sort of you know normally a few years ago oh somebody'd have a paper like MIT would do a paper or Google or whatever and everybody read about it and go oh that's cool and maybe over time folks would figure it out and start to kind of make its way around this thing went from hey this is a cool thing oh it does this stuff pretty well to here's a thousand different implementations of it and here's how you install it on your mac at home that's amazing like this time from cool new technique to mass adoption i've never like pytorch didn't do this like like even open source projects right nothing has gone this fast and i'm fascinated to see if if other this becomes a pattern for other new techniques that just move the the state of the state of the of the platforms just faster so yeah 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 absolutely i agree and when you were responding to, to this question i also started thinking about uh, the trend that i see in general in the big data landscape mm. to some extent this might be also related to data science 
what I see is that we have more and more technologies that use SQL as a main data uh, processing language. For yeah. example, we have Snowflake or Flink SQL or DBT. And this also lowers the barrier of entry to do analytics and possibly data science. Yep. And how would you compare like SQL uh, to Python? Because uh, like Python is the language that you use at Anaconda, but on the yeah. other hand, uh, SQL can be also used uh, to, to do data science. And do you see those languages as uh, maybe competitors or maybe they complement each other? And maybe like the data scientist uh, should know them both to actually be uh, efficient in, in his or her daily work. At a prior company, um, there was maybe, uh, in my team, there's maybe 10 analysts that just wrote SQL all day. And then a couple, a few data scientists, some writing Python, some writing R. And no, they work together very fine. I think this is not a new thing. SQL has been, in a lot of ways, the lingua franca of, of data, anal data analysis forever because it is extremely accessible. Um, even from kind of non-programmers. So a lot of finance people I've worked with, they know SQL, they know enough SQL to do some fairly sophisticated things. It's a surprisingly, like having learned SQL right a long, long, long time ago, it's a surprisingly accessible language. I never would have thought about it that way, but people have learned it and learned enough to, to do good stuff with it. Um, I don't think that it competes with Python at all. And I think, you know, we're partners with Snowflake. so. One of the things we did, we've done at Anaconda is um, they have this snow park thing where they let you ex write um, extended queries in Java, JavaScript or now Python. Um, and including, like you can do, you know, most of the packages we have are available and you can write those in your, in your queries and stuff. Um, and just to give that kind of escape hatch for much more sophisticated type of processing. I think these things will, continued I, I don't think they compete i think they coexist i think that a lot of what we're doing is trying to make things more accessible to folks who are not kind of programmers um, make it easier for them to do more sophisticated things whether that's PyScript or something like that that is um easier for people to use um we will continue to do that. So no, I, I think I think very much um, anybody who's doing this will know or at least understand SQL. Uh, and you know, if there's ways that they can start to learn Python to do more sophisticated things when they reach the limit, right? Oh, I, it's you know, this is a thousand line SQL query, or I could do this in five lines of Python. Um, they'll they'll learn. I think as we make things more accessible, as we make them easier to learn, I, I think they'll, that'll be an obvious way for folks to grow. So no, I, I think they're very much complementary. Mm -hmm. There's a lot yeah. of stuff I still do in my own work, because of course our EDWs and Snowflake, um, yeah, I, I'll write queries. I could write Python, I'll write query because I can do that faster in some stuff. And then there's places where uh, it's just easier for me to write Python. It's faster for me to write Python. So yeah, the right tool for the right job. Yeah, that's that's true. And uh, we have still a few minutes left, and I will have a final question for you. This is also related to the trends uh, data science, but in short term, the final question is about the, the job market. 
And this year, we hear very often about layoffs in the tech sector and how, in your opinion, data science and data scientists as a job sector are resilient to such layoffs uh, comparing to other roles in the tech industry. I can't speak to layoffs um, specifically because I don't know. I, I don't have enough knowledge on like who's getting laid off from Twitter and who's getting laid off from other places. But um, I can speak to hiring in the market because I'm hiring. Um, I would imagine in these big companies, it, it's got it, it is impacting the data teams as well. However, as somebody who's been hiring data scientists, data engineers in this market, it's a very healthy market for job seekers. Um, one of the things that's also been great for, for folks who are in this area is, again, because so many companies are now fully remote or, or partially remote or whatever, is that we've had to do that. Uh, and I don't mean we, Anaconda, I mean we, the industry, have had to do that because it was so hard to find people, right? Uh, prior companies, it took for ever to hire a data scientist because there was so much demand for them so be, me being able to hire in europe or being able to hire in different parts of the us or canada or or wherever um has made it has made it easier but it's there's st these roles are still very much in demand these are still um one of the hardest roles to hire it's a little bit easier for us because we're at anaconda because we're well known by data scientists um, at prior companies, it was a struggle, um, but it's still difficult for us. There's still a lot of demand for these roles. Even as the economy does whatever it's going to do and whatever is going to happen in the industry over the next couple of years, I don't see the demand for these roles getting smaller. I only see them getting bigger. Um, there, as I said, the, it's great that the tools, easy versions of the tools are now accessible. All that's teaching companies is companies who never would have thought about having a data science team or data scientist are now getting enough knowledge around how valuable it is that they're going to want to hire at some point they will reach the limit of what they can get off the shelf and they will want to hire so uh yeah i'm not uh for there's uh, some roles that are always going to be hiring and i think data science data engineering uh data analysts these are roles that are will be valuable for a very long time mm -hmm. we're not yeah. we're not we're not reaching we're not reaching um sat, a saturation of that market at all yeah so this is also the observation that i make uh, that the data cloud and analytics uh, sectors are very healthy and very resilient and there is still a very high adoption of data oriented and data specific uh, solutions and when I analyze uh, the data about the layoffs and read articles describing them, then it's uh, very often mentioned that other departments are more affected, uh, such as sales, uh, marketing, recruitment, HR. What, of course, makes me sad that people are losing their jobs. Uh, however, the data says that uh, those layoffs uh, don't impact data engineering roles that much. And 
also even recently I saw some article uh, saying that only a few percent of data engineers, if any, are laid off by their companies. Uh, but also it's worth adding that usually such engineers uh, quickly find uh, jobs in other companies because they are recruiting. Uh, so in the worst scenario for data engineers, it can happen that maybe they, they need to change their jobs or maybe they need to, 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 to do something to upskill themselves, but, uh, but usually the impact is not, not that high, especially comparing to, uh, to other roles uh, and people working in other departments. That's absolutely right, yeah. And yeah, so th this was my final question. And I would like to ask if there is anything that you would like to s summarize or add before we conclude our podcast. How about I ask you a question? Uh, yes, please. One question I have for you, Adam. Before you and I started recording early, we were just catching up. And you were talking to me about um, some of the work your company has been doing and we talked about bringing agile processes and agile frameworks into data engineering, into data science. And I've found it, um, I, I have been able to do it, but I've found it really challenging to get teams and companies, especially uh, understanding that this is an area you can use agile practices in. What have you learned um, from working with different companies about that? Uh, yes, sure. So, uh, so first of all, uh, we have an internal process called getting data way of working uh, that we follow when we start new projects. And probably the most important goal for us is that we can deliver something meaningful uh, with our customers in just uh, three or six months. And in case of data engineering and data science projects, I believe that uh, three or six months is usually a short period of time, uh, especially if you build something from scratch. And this, this requires that we introduce a number of good agile practices. Uh, so, uh, for example, uh, we start with a discovery phase that usually takes just a, a few days or maybe sometimes a few weeks, depending on the complexity of the project. But uh, during this phase, uh, we want to understand the business use case and the, the real goals that customer would like to achieve. And this, this definitely helps us to define the, the vision of the target solution, uh, but also we can specify very initial backlog of tasks and the very first milestones that we could uh, achieve. But maybe I can explain it better with a more concrete example. Uh, because, for instance, uh, two years ago we had been working on a complex project with one of the banks. So banks, by definition, are not the startups or scale-ups that are digital native and uh, work in very agile way where change is developed in their uh, like business model. Uh, so banks are more enterprise uh, companies with their own uh, rhythm of working. And in this project, uh, our goal was to build their ML platform in the cloud. 
uh, move move actually because uh, before then they they had been working on on-premise infrastructure and also we needed to introduce the MLOps toolkit that could support the lifecycle of their machine learning models and then finally we had to migrate and run tens or even hundreds of of their machine learning models in the cloud and the initial idea could be to to build their ml platform first and solve all necessary infrastructure platform security networking uh, challenges first and then ingest all necessary data sets and data sources to the data lake and then start moving their ml models there but instead we decided to follow more agile and more iterative approach so uh, we agreed that we'll first take into account just a single representative uh, machine learning model and then build the first version of the ML platform uh, with all uh, features that are necessary to support the life cycle of this uh, single model only and also ingest only a few data sources that are only needed by this model. Uh, so let's assume that this was a, a batch model that comes from the uh, business unit number one. And then we simply took a second batch model from the second business unit and added uh, just a few necessary functionalities uh, to our ML platform and ingestion and ETL pipelines uh, to support this model as well. And then we took the, the third model and for, in, for instance, uh, you could take the online model, not the batch one, from the other business unit and then you could uh, add new functionalities to our ML platform to support, for example, um, serving the online models or even online feature engineering. So, uh, so in this agile and iterative way, we extended the functionalities of our ML platform by onboarding new models one by one, but we only added uh, features that they were that were required by our models. And the same about the data ingestion and ETL pipelines, or about feature engineering. Uh, so, in other words, in each iteration, the customer got new functionalities uh, that they could start using immediately and only the functionalities that were really needed based on our current priorities and based on our uh, milestones and the, the end vision of the, the platform. And to achieve uh, this goal that we developed something useful in iterations, uh, we had to introduce a number of agile ceremonies, such as uh, stand-ups, uh, sprints, and dem demos. And it was extremely uh, useful because we could demonstrate the results of our work to the shareholder, we could collect the feedback, we could ask uh, questions. We could also identify the risks as early as possible and try to mitigate uh, them without as little cost as possible. And even we could change the way of our work or uh, change the priorities because sometimes it was needed because uh, in each iteration we discovered something, uh, something new. 
And it was interesting to learn how quickly our requirements or assumptions had changed, especially given the fact uh, that two years ago, not that many banks uh, or finance companies built their ML platforms uh, in the cloud, uh, because uh, those were, and I believe still are, quite innovative uh, projects in, uh, in this sector. Uh, but, but we managed to include uh, changing requirements in our work. And um, I must also say, uh, when, uh, when I talk about introducing iterative and agile way, uh, that the one thing that I learned is that the concern that our customer, uh, customers had sometimes, that they were afraid that when we follow such iterative approach, uh, we could uh, we could end up building some solutions that are good for short term uh, because we could quickly show the results of our work, but they, uh, this solution might not be good in the long term. Uh, however, we address this concern by actually having a quite clear vision of the target solution that we, uh, that we initially come up with and we uh, adapt uh, in each iteration uh, something that uh, that we want to deliver at the end of the project and we periodically check if new functionalities or new use cases can be implemented uh, without refactoring. And what, what also helps us very much is the fact that our customers are very engaged, very responsive, uh, very often they build solution with us. So, uh, so thanks to that, the feedback loop, which is very important, uh, this feedback loop is very short. Uh, the customer, our customer, uh, get is get, uh, is getting updated very often about the status of the work and if if they change some requirements or some of the assumptions are no longer valid they know that we can handle those uh, scenarios and they they understand why we need to make decisions to to change something and they um, uh, they are not afraid of uh, such change that's very cool that's really really cool yeah so many so many folks in your situation would be like, all right, give, let's do a statement of work here. We'll deliver, you know, tranche one in like six months and then whatever. And, and it wouldn't work. So yeah, it's great. That's excellent. Yes. Yes. This, this unfortunately uh, would definitely happen if we, if we wouldn't push for agile approach in, in those type of projects. Yeah. And this concludes our podcast episode. So thank you very much for this conversation and thank, uh, thank for everyone uh, from our audience for listening. Mm -hmm.